That's been the biggest single force in the property market for quite some time now, but it became most visible in, in the COVID period, but it's been going on for longer. People moving from one part of Australia to another and what the trend we call the exodus to affordable lifestyle. It's still very powerful. It's still happening. People moving to the smaller cities, people moving to the regional areas. And that's been uh, the thing that's driven that, that recent boom. Welcome back to Dashdot Insider. Joining me today is a perennial guest, not a pest, a guest, a perennial guest. I think Terry's been on this show more times than anyone else. I think I'd have to fact check that, but I think it's pretty. I think it'd have to be pretty true. He's been a guest, been coming on this podcast for several years now. He's been a great guide, mentor, and friend to myself throughout the journey, and he's also been a stalwart of the industry for over thirty-five years, casting aspersions and also forecasts into the into the ether telling people where the best place to buy properties are all over the country, year in, year out, with a surprisingly high level of efficacy. Terry, how are you? Welcome back. Thank you, Goose. Look, I'm, I'm great. Um, we, we live in interesting times, but actually, you know, I, I found 2023 to be a, a really good time to be doing what we do. You know, we started the year with economists telling us that prices were going to crash and it was going to be um, all sorts of doomsday scenarios for property. And of course, it hasn't turned out that way. It's actually a really good market. It's a market of opportunity. We don't have boom conditions, which um, is actually, I think, quite good. It's just a good, steady market. And what we've seen um, in our latest analysis is is there's a real resurgence in buying activity around the country um, that's shown up in our analysis of sales activity for the most recent quarter, uh, which points to a continuation of um, pretty solid price growth uh, for the next little while. Yeah, it's really interesting. So we um we've been nominated for an innovation award, and uh, the 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 person who was doing some write up and PR around around that was sort of asking me. Uh, he said, "What's the difference?" Because we obviously make assessments of locations. We've got forecasting and stuff like that as well. And this guy asked me. He said, "Well, what's the difference between uh, what you guys do and what an economist does in terms of like for <laughs> suggesting and forecasting for different areas?" <laughs> and I was like. Oh, I was like, where do you even where do you even start with that? I was like, it's like it's like asking the difference between what is this difference between what a social worker does and what a drug dealer does. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a great. I should have. I'll go back to him with that. I'll say that he can quote it. Yeah. If you want to be misled about what's going on with with property markets, are likely to happen. Speak to economists, particularly when employed by one of the major banks, and be completely misled. Not because they deliberately set out to mislead anybody, but because they just haven't got a clue about how property markets work and they continue to get their forecasts spectacularly wrong again and again. I don't know how they keep their jobs. Totally. And it, it's a great example of Hanlon's Razor. Are you, are you familiar with Hanlon's Razor, the mental uh, mental model? Well, pretend I haven't. Okay. Well, Hanlon's Razor is a kind of like a mental, frame, a mental framework, a mental model that states never attribute to malice that which you can attribute to stupidity or ignorance, and, and that is the that's the case. I don't think economists are bad people. I just think that they don't have the full set of information. Subsequently, they're unable to make accurate assessments of what's actually really going on. And you can kind of see how that's mapped out over the last eighteen months with all of the property market is crashing baloney. I mean, we've seen hundred percent of our clients have had double digit price growth over the last uh, over the last twelve months, which is pretty pretty wild. Have you been seeing that kind of thing too, Terry? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, economists. Are stuck in this mindset that it's all about interest rates, and if interest rates are high or rising, then for prices must fall. Um, and if you look at history, clearly they're not students of history because if you look at um, the last 20, 30 years, um, very different things have happened. You know, interest rates are not the biggest factor influencing markets. I mean, 2023 has proven that yet again. There are other bigger forces in play. So at one point, some point in the future, hopefully the economists working for the major banks will realise that, but I'm not really holding my breath because they seem to be stuck with the economic theories and, and no matter how many times they get it wrong, they don't want to um, let go of them. I actually don't want them to start getting it right, Terry, because you know I think it's great because it just means like there's big wide open space for, for people, like you and, <laughs> people like you and I to get, get in there and get around it. I think it's awesome. Keep looking in the wrong direction. Perfect. Yeah. 
Oh, but, you know, at the same time, it does do harm because, you know, people like, think back to the middle of 2020 when COVID came along and the bank on us were forecasting an absolute collapse in property values. And what we got was a property boom. And people who decided to defer purchase decisions that they were on the verge of making missed out on all this wonderful capital growth and um, wealth creation that they otherwise might have been part of, uh, which is. Yeah, which is, which is super interesting as well because wealth creation can seem like a selfish game, by the way. Like people think that it's all about the individuals making money, but actually it's far beyond that. There's a lot of studies um, into what are the most transformational things that you can do for a community to lift a community up. You know, like is it education? Is it healthcare? Is it, you know, like what, what are these kind of things? The most transformational thing that you can do for a society or a community is to elevate the levels of affluence, which is effectively to build wealth, right? Because that actually creates the most amount of opportunities because off the back of that you can have improved healthcare and uh, healthcare and education and more opportunities and people can elevate and if you think about um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs you know you've got um, basically the first couple of layers are just survival stuff it's you know food and shelter procreation like these kind of basic you got to meet your basic needs once you can get to a place of some degree of abundance right and so you can kind of deem that however you want then have the capability to think, okay, what do I want out of life and how can I make a positive impact for myself and my community and my family and all of this kind of stuff? So one of the, and this is in fact why I'm so passionate about, about property investing. Not, I, I actually don't care about property and I don't really care about all of that kind of stuff. What I actually really care about is the capability for it to be a transformational vehicle for social change because as you elevate those standards, you actually can change a community. Um, and I don't think that that gets kind of considered enough. What do you think about that? No, no, I agree entirely with that, but I would extend a little bit further and look at it from a, a different viewpoint, from the viewpoint of what Australia needs to happen in a couple of important areas. There are, there are two really strong reasons why we actually need to be encouraging and incentivizing and rewarding property investment. The first is that we need to solve this rental crisis and the politicians haven't got a clue. You know, an objective of building $1.2 million homes in the next five years which is impossible anyway, but it's, it's just not going to do it. And the, the only way we can solve this problem is by encouraging people to become property investors because that's where more than 90% of the, the properties that people rent come from. But the other reason is that we have an ageing population and the latest intergenerational report for what it's worth uh, tells us how you know the country isn't going to be able to afford to fund pensions for the huge number of people of retirement age that we're going to have in you know, 10 and 20 and 30 years' time. We need people to fund their own retirements and property investment is the best way people can do it. So there's a couple of really good reasons why we should be actively, um, proactively encouraging people to be property investors um, for, for the good of the nation um, as well as for the, the reasons that you've articulated for, you know, for the good of individuals and their families and elevating society generally. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. But it's really interesting, right, because – Firstly, I think one of the biggest misconceptions that happen in society broadly is that property investors cause rental problems, right? That seems to be one of the biggest, oh, you know, rental prices are going up. It's all the property investors' fault. They're just buying all these properties and jacking up. But actually, the inverse is true. And if you have, if you have a look at what happens through 2020, 2021, all of that kind of stuff, particularly in the Sydney market, is a lot of property investors sold homeowners bought, which reduced the, the total rental pool, which then actually made it almost impossible to rent in Sydney. Like the, the rental situation in Sydney is, is dire. But that is just one example of, of dire markets all across the country. You, you and I have watched vacancy rates plummet consistently year after year to, to the point where it's like, this is farcical. Can anyone even get a property? I was talking to someone today who's migrating from New Zealand, not, not dissimilar from yourself, um, to Sydney, and he's trying to get a place to rent the amount of hoops he's having to jump through. They're asking for a hand-signed letter from the CEO, which is me, to prove that he genuinely is really gainfully. He's been with us for a year and a half, you know, like it, one of the, And so this whole idea that um, property investors are the cause, not the solution to the rental problem, I think is actually one of the biggest misconceptions. I'd love for you to talk to that, but before I let you get a word in, the other side of this as well, though, is that if we suddenly had all property investors, or, you know, if we, the more property investors buy properties, the more we compromise the ability for first homeowners to get into the market. And so I'd love for you to talk to that, the property investor piece and how, it's the, how it solves the, 
the rental piece, but then reflecting potentially also on like how does that affect homeowners? Look, um, I have a very strong view that in this country, we, we never actually fix any of the problems. Um, and it's not just in the real estate, it's right across the board with aged care and deaths and custody and you name it. We, we grandstand, we have window dressing, we have inquiries, we have press conferences, we have royal commissions, which is always a signal that nothing's going to change. We have referendums. Um, you know, as a, as a, in preference to actually implementing policies that fix problems. And, um, what we do in the midst of that process is that we, we scapegoat people rather than actually identify the real cause and actually fix it. So, so we have it with the rental shortage crisis that, um, Rather than actually examining how do we get in this position and therefore having understood that, how do we then turn it around, what politicians would rather do is find a scapegoat. They always do this. And in this case, it's property investors, mum and dad property investors, demonise them, vilify them, and probably slam them off high taxes, which will make the situation worse. Um, so that's what's currently happening with politicians, with media as far as the rental crisis goes. Um, we're not going to fix this until we stop doing that and, and do actually the opposite. We actually have to encourage people to become property investors. A third of Australian households rent. 90% or more of the properties they rent are provided by mum and dad investors, not by government, not by big corporations, but by ordinary investors. We've got to recognise that and understand that the reason we have a shortage is because more and more people have dropped out. More and more investors have sold rather than bought. And every time that happens the pool of rental properties gets less and vacancies drop. And we've just seen the figures out yesterday. Um, the latest figures show that vacancies have dropped again and it's a crisis level. And um, if we do what the Greens want to do, which is rental caps and scrapping negative gearing, we'll turn this crisis into an absolute national disaster. Um, I'm just actually um, doing a broadcast about um, about this very subject and I've, I've named a particular Greens politician is the dumbest and most dangerous politician in Australia because he's at just so hell-bent on this notion that the way you deal with this problem is have a, a rental freeze and squash property investors. You know, it's the complete polar opposite of what we need to do. It will actually make wine. Wine. Why is that the polar? Help, help, help the listener understand why is why is it not the solution? It's not dealing with the actual problem. It's like putting a Band-Aid on a broken leg. The problem is the shortage. Um, the reason why rents are rising is because we have a shortage. It doesn't matter how much interest rates go up or how much insurance costs co- go up. Um, investors can't increase rents if if there's a, like a 5% vacancy rate. The reason why rents are going up is we've got a 1% vacancy rate. Um, we've got to deal with that, the shortage. A rental cap will cause more people to sell. It will discourage more and more people not to get into the market as property investors, and so the shortage will get worse. A rental cap is no use to a tenant who can't find a property anywhere at any price. And you've just articulated an example that you're familiar with, but it's happening all over Australia, that if there's a rental property becomes available, there's an open house, 20 or 30 people will show up competing for that property, and only one will be successful. And I know people who go to these open houses again and again, they keep missing out. A rental cap's no use to them. They just want a property, but they can't get one at any price. And, um, you know, even talk of a rental cap um, is discouraging investors. Pippa's just completed their latest uh, survey uh, nationally of property investors. And what they found is the, the most investors, not sorry, a lot more investors have sold in the last 12 months than is normal. Um, so investors are selling, not buying. And the states in which they have sold the most are Queensland and Victoria, and those are the states which, which have made the, the most negative noises in terms of you know, rental caps, increasing land tax, etc., making the situation worse for property investors. And those are the states in which people are just selling up and getting the hell out because it's too hard. You know, most investors are mum and dad households on average incomes. They're not wealthy people. They're looking to buy affordable property with a decent rental yield. But because interest rates are rising, because land taxes are rising, because insurance premiums are rising, and there's all this demonising of them, they're just saying to hell with it. It's too hard. We're getting out. So we have a rental shortage crisis. And until we stop doing all of that and start incentivising them, rewarding them and congratulating them, we're not going to fix this problem. You can build one, two million dollar homes, but it's not possible. But if they did, 
it's not going to fix the rental shortage unless investors buy 30 or 35% of them. And in the current circumstances, that won't happen because we've discouraged investment so severely, um, it's going to take a while to turn it around. Let me ask you a question, just to play devil's advocate a little bit here, right? just to kind of push this into a theoretical, what if, what if there was a scenario where no one could be a property investor, right? So next week, that's it. All, all investment properties must go up for sale, right? Now, in theory, what that would do, in theory, that would um, flood the market with properties, which would lower the price of properties on aggregate because you probably see prices come down because there'd be more supply. I'm hypothesizing here. And theoretically, it might mean that more people could get into buying their first home easier, maybe. Why wouldn't that be a, why wouldn't that be a solution? Well, it would be a disaster for a lot of people because their biggest asset would go down in value and their, their plans for retirement would be thrown out the window. Um, but no, I mean, then there'll be such a, a political outcry that um, – that whoever was the government in power that actually um, implemented that policy would lose government in a landslide and all of that. But um, no matter what you do in that regard, there's always going to be a, a cohort that needs to rent. And um, like, you know, my kids, um, university students, they got no interest in property ownership, no matter, you know, if they implemented what you have just suggested, they still wouldn't be able to afford to buy it and they wouldn't be interested yeah, they might not. No, they, don't, they, they don't want to. They just want well-located, affordable rental, and that's that's the problem. And now the scenario that you're suggesting, which now would never happen, but um, if it did, it it, it doesn't fit, fix the fundamental problem. Um, you know, the rental properties have to come from somewhere. Um, government provides very little, and big corporations provide very little. Um, you know, some people think it would be great if the only government was the, was the landlord for everybody. Um, you know, in Queensland, there are 500 million properties rented. Imagine the cost for the Queensland government of, of replacing mum and dad investors for 500 million properties. I mean, they, they, they're, they're, they're in a budget crisis. They, they don't have hundreds of billions of dollars spare to do that, so it's not going to happen. Now, the system that we actually have works as long as politicians stop tinkering and um, discouraging the people who supply the product that's currently in short supply. Well, I think it points also like you're right in that it wouldn't solve anything because here's the thing, right? A lot of people are sitting there saying, well, you know, there should be there should be less property investors so there's, you know, more people can, number one, less property investors equals less rental properties, right? Fact. And there's already a rental crisis. So do you want to make that worse? That'd be stupid. The idea also that suddenly by investors pulling out of the market is going to create some kind of, you know, you know, e- equality in the marketplace where more people are going to be able to participate, again, is fundamentally broken. The issue is not are there too many property investors or are there not enough homeowners? The issue is actually this, there's probably three things that I can think off the top of my head that point to where the problem might actually be. Number one, income growth. Nominal income growth in Australia over the last 40 years has been very slow compared to many other measures. Number two, immigration. We've got a tremendously high amount of immigration, which I think is a good thing, right? So I think that's a great thing that we have a lot of immigration. I think it's awesome. And then we've got, we just have, don't have enough buildings. You know, we've had a deficit in building supply versus population needs for a serious amount of time, and it's only been getting worse. And so the issue is not, are property investors the problem? The issue is there's not enough houses, the issue is that there are not enough houses. For the, we have plenty of people and this getting, we're getting more and more people and the amount we had a deficit and currently the amount of people that are coming into the country is greater than the amount of properties that we're building. That only leads to more constrained supply. And it doesn't matter whether it's all homeowners or all investors or whatever, someone's going to be missing out because there isn't enough. And so arguing over who's, who's, sitting, who's the heavier person on the seesaw, who's causing the situation to kind of, it's just it's ridiculous, right? Because it's not that's not the issue. But but it's also a fallacy that that you know, it's highly prevalent um, in media that somehow investors are the reason why prices rise and we have a poor affordability. Now investors aren't a problem. This, the boom that we had in 2020, 2021, that wasn't driven by investors, it was driven by home buyers moving to other parts of Australia. Investors as a market share in that boom were much lower than historically is, has been the case. But they're a convenient scapegoat. Um, you know, there was a period um, five, six years ago when there was 
a couple of federal inquiries about affordability, they decided to scapegoat foreign investors, which they then used as a, a great excuse to raise even more revenue from the housing market. So rather than banning foreign investment, they just hit them with higher taxes. Um, and they pretty much wiped out foreign investment in Australia um, because it was just become so unattractive because suddenly they're having to pay these huge fees to buy into Australia. Affordability did not improve. Prices did not drop. Foreign investors were never the problem. And um, Australian investors aren't the problem either. You know, when prices rise, it's fundamentally usually driven by home buyers. Home buyers are always the biggest cohort in the market. Um, home buyers of all types, and they're the people who drive prices um, by piling into the market like they did in 2021. Um, not investors. So, but, you know, they're a convenient scapegoat, and that's what we like to do in Australia. Scapegoat people demonize, have press conferences and inquiries, but we don't actually deal with the real issues and fix the problem. So I'm not very... I 100% agree with you, Terry, and it's really interesting, right, because a lot of people do have that opinion that it's like property investors drive the price up. But actually, if you actually look at what drives price growth, it's the homeowners. It's the homeowners moving into the area. And in fact, you can, you can tell that by looking at the relationship between um, internal migration and property prices. Because internal migration uh, will drive property prices more than anything else. That's not property investors staying where they are in wherever, living in Sydney and buying in Townsville, for example. That's people moving to Townsville to live in Townsville i.e. homeowners. And the relationship between internal migration, interstate migration, is actually a really big indicator. And in all markets, the the, the, the homeowners are the ones who drive price growth. Yeah, and, and you're right about internal migration. That's been the biggest single force in the property market for quite some time now, but it became most visible in, in the COVID period, but it's been going on for longer. People moving from one part of Australia to another and what the trend we call the exodus to affordable lifestyle. It's still very powerful. It's still happening. People moving to the smaller cities, people moving to the regional areas. And that's been uh, the thing that's driven that that recent boom. And um, it's still happening. You know, there's been a big upturn in sales activity in the latest quarter, according to our analysis of sales activity. And, you know, it's still very much underway, but it's not investors. Investors are, uh, compared to historical levels, uh, very low as a proportion of the market. Their market share is much lower than has been historically the case. What, what uh, do, you, do you have a rough kind of heuristic on the percentage of property investors versus homeowners in the market? Well, I mean, traditionally investors have been about a third, but you know, in recent years they've been more, somewhere like between 20 and 25%. It, it's dropped quite a lot and it remains that way. And what, what we're seeing in recent years, and the, the latest PIPA survey confirms that again, is that investors are more likely to be selling than than buying at the moment, um, which is a bit of a shame from all those different perspectives. We really do need people to be property investors for the reasons I, I mentioned earlier, not just for the rental shortage crisis, but also f- so people can you know invest for their retirement and not be a burden on the tax system when they in the you know seventies and eighties. Yeah, I agree with you. Now, imagine for a moment that I could grant you the power of becoming the Prime Minister of Australia, Prime Minister Terry Ryder. What would you do to fix this problem? If you had all the power, in, assuming that you actually didn't have to deal with the bureaucracy of government. So maybe we'll call you like King Dictator of Australia so I don't have to deal with the political bullshit. What would you actually do if you could wave a magic wand? How would you fix the problem? Well, firstly, I would make you my Deputy Prime Minister, Geese, because I think that would be quite important. Look, um, one of the things we've got to do, we've got to stop this business where it's considered to be okay to charge investors more for everything. Investors pay higher interest rates than homeowners. There's no earthly reason why that should be the case. We've got to make that illegal. You know, everyone gets charged the same interest rate, including investors. Investors get char- charged higher rates by councils. We've got to stop that. Investors get charged higher rates of insurance by the insurance companies. Investors have to pay taxes that no one else pays. We've got to get rid of land tax. I mean, this was something introduced 150 years ago to force wealthy cattle barons to to break up their holdings, you know, and 150 years later, it's still here as a, as a tax on property ownership. We've got to get rid of that. We've got to get rid of stamp duty, not just for property investors, but for everybody. And, you know, a tax on buying a home or a property of any sort 
how the hell did we ever have that? A lot of countries don't have stamp duty. New Zealand doesn't. Um, we've got to get rid of these these taxation disincentives to property investors. So that, that's what I would attack. And of course, revenue has to be chased, replaced with other things. And there's all sorts of theories about how you could do that. But we've got to firstly stop charging investors more for everything. And we do that now because they're considered fair game. They're considered to be like a a minority in society. So literally, there's less damage in slugging investor owners than slugging homeowners because the, you know, 70% of households are own property and we, we've got to leave them alone because it'd be electorally damaging. So we slug property investors and foreign investors. We've got to stop doing that because it's really damaging to society generally when we do it. So that's what I'd do as Prime Minister. That would be the first basic step and it would probably be unpopular in certain quarters, but um, with uh, sold properly, we could perhaps help people to understand why it's important. What about capital gains tax? Would you get rid of that? Yeah, I, I, well, I certainly would. Um, you know, that, that was something that Paul Keating dumped on us, you know, up until the time when he was in government, we didn't have capital gains tax in Australia. Yeah, right, I didn't um, know about that. There you go. Yeah, um, um, <laughs> yes, uh, there, there was a time in my lifetime where we didn't have capital gains tax. Um, and um, and now it's this insidious thing where, you know, well, I'm sort of um, – Coming up against this all the time, I, 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 you know, as a person who owns a business and as a person who is a property investor, I feel like I'm under assault from the taxation office all the time. The, I get the feeling their mentality is that we're all criminals and we need to be squashed, and they they proceed from on the basis of guilty to proven innocent, and um, you know, capital gains tax is just one of those things that I think you know that we could uh, get rid of. Um, and yeah, this seems, seems to be go on. But I'll just finish that thought. You know, while we're slugging mum and dad investors with all these imposts um, and all these impositions on the process of creating new dwellings, all the taxes, fees, and charges in there, we've got multinational corporations making billions of dollars of profit in Australia, getting away paying no tax at all. That's one of the ways in which we replace the taxation revenue that would be lost if we got rid of you know stamp duty and capital gains tax and land tax. Because that revenue has to be replaced somehow, but you know there are ways to do it. Um, and it's interesting to me that you know the Greens, for example, who you know, God help us if they ever get in any foothold and power in this country federally, because of their policies on the property industry implemented, it'll be like Ireland, where there's absolutely nothing available because they did everything in Ireland that um, the Greens want to do in Australia, and it was a, turned into a disaster. Um, but um, and now I've just just lost my main train of thought that I was I, because I sidetracked there. Well, it's, it's good to do a side quest every now and then, Terry. Don't let that bog you down. But it's interesting, right? Because it, what it what it feels like is that there's a success tax that gets stuck on everything, right? That it's kind of like for any individual who's seeking to try and rise up above their you know allotted station to try and create a betterness for themselves and their family that. There's all of these artificial barriers that they need to slog through just to try and get somewhere. And I actually think that that's not healthy. I don't think that's healthy for society. Now, you know, that's a quite a fairly, you know, sort of capitalist kind of kind of statement. And I just want to uh, I want to balance that by saying that I do believe deeply in the value of things like social welfare and taking care of the community and taking care of society and I don't think it should be a cutthroat every man for himself kind of kind of scenario, but I do feel like you know, once you start thinking about how all of these different impositions get put on, um, anyone who's trying to find success, whether it be in business, but in this case, property investing or whatever, when they're trying to make a go of it, there seems to be a constant barrage of things where the government is seeking to take away or tamp down your capability to get benefit or gain from that because you've gone out of your way to do it. And the only way to the only way to achieve anything in life that is abnormal or, or you know to, to create something is to go beyond what the kind of normal person does and you seem to get punished for that what do you think about that yeah well i think you're absolutely right it's the politics of envy it's sort of like um you know you appear to have more than me so you, you need to be squashed so i'm going to support you know a, a rent freeze or a, you know um, higher taxes or scrapping negative gearing etc it's the politics of envy um but what i find interesting particularly with the viewpoint of the greens um with their attitude to 
you know, their policies on the housing ma- market is that they won't have a rental freeze across the country, um, which won't solve the problem or make it worse ultimately. But it's interesting to me that they or nobody, including the Greens, is, is suggesting that we have a, a cap on the price of petrol or on the electricity prices, which are rising, or on insurance premiums or on what you pay at the supermarket. So that not a they're not proposing to slap a, a freeze on multinational corporations and oil companies and mining companies and supermarket chains. Only mum and dad property investors are being singled out for being told that they can't increase their price in the face of all the rising costs that they're dealing with. And I find that really rather strange. I would have thought that um, an organisation like the Greens would be uh, interested in um, you know, targeting some of the, the big corporations who are making billion-dollar profits rather than mum, mum and dad struggling households who happen to own a rental property. It's, it's, it's rather a barren philosophy. I don't think I've thought it through very carefully. Yeah, no, I agree. Hey, I want to circle back to something you said earlier on in the conversation. You said that 2023 has been good. You said it's not boom conditions in 2023. And I'm very interested to know. I'm very interested to dig into that. Because it relates to this, because you know, like, there's an opportunity. I th- personally, I think there's an opportunity for transformational wealth to happen in the next couple of couple of years. Personally, but I'd love to know your take on it. Given that everything that we're saying, right? There's an extreme situation as it relates to rentals and subsequently other aspects of the property market. Real estate is the single largest asset class, not just in Australia but in the world. It is the number one way for so ninety. There's that stat that like ninety percent of millionaires are. are, are made in real estate but um 93% of billionaires are uh, made in business but the thing but the interesting thing about that is that real estate is the wealth creator for the masses it is the single thing that will allow most people to create a transformationally different situation for them and their family and their lineage and all of that kind of stuff it's the it's the most accessible and therefore it's kind of like the most important one that we democratize it's the single largest asset class that we can find and I believe that there's uh, there's because of the things that we're seeing and you know related to the discussion we're having around an extremely tight real estate market, I actually think that we're pointing towards a situation where we're going to see accelerated growth, particularly over the next couple of years. I'd love to get your take on that. Um, accelerated growth in real estate values? Yep. Well, I think so. Um, you know, up until this point in 2023, we've seen quite moderate growth in most places. Some places have done better. Um but it's been, compared to 2021, it's been relatively moderate. I think it's going to pick up and become stronger. And one of the reasons I believe that is but having just analysed the latest quarter for sales activity and just seen this quite remarkable upturn in so many parts of the country. You know, real estate is surging back. I think we've gone through a period where um, markets struggled a bit um, for all sorts of reasons, high inflation, negative media, um, people adapting to the new sort of higher interest rate regime. Etc. But I think people have made that switch, you know, because it always happens that, you know, when interest rates go up, there's a period of sort of people going, oh shit. Um, and then once people get used to it and adapt to it and realize, well, you know, life as we know it hasn't ended, we can get on with it. So I think we've seen as 2023 has progressed that we've seen greater and greater evidence of recovery and resurgence in property markets in this latest quarter that we've analyzed is very emphatic in that regard. Melbourne's turned around dramatically. So has Brisbane. Uh, Sydney was already well underway, but it's more so now. And many of the regional markets, meanwhile, Perth and Adelaide have continued to be strong right throughout and still are. So all of that means that I think we've got further upward pressure on property prices. So in places where we've had, say, property growth at the rate of 5% um, a year at the moment, that's going to become, you know, 8 9 10% um, as we sort of, go towards the end of this year and into 2024. So we're going to see, I think, accelerated levels of growth. Um, and it's going to be exacerbated by the fact that we have such low vacancies because that feeds into it and rents are rising because of that. And we have, as you've mentioned, a shortage of properties. We have not been building enough. Right now we're not building enough and we have such problems in the building industry with builders going broke and supplies uh, chain issues and shortages of everything, uh, that's going to continue to be the case. I mean, this, we're not going to go even close to achieving this $1.2 million 
ambition of the federal government. I think it was just a press conference, really. I don't think they actually have any concept of how it's going to happen or how they're going to fix the problems, if they're even aware of them. Um, so we're going to continue to have this shortage. Meanwhile, we're lifting the migrant intake. So it all points to upward pressure on prices more than we've seen so far this year. That's a long-winded way of saying, yes, I agree with you, Goose. Well, it's good. I like it because um, it actually – what was interesting in that, it reminded me of a um, uh, a report that I was reading recently, which actually pointed to why historically interest rate – like steep interest rate rises tend to lead to property market booms. And the thesis is this. So um, typically uh, high interest rates come off uh, the back of a period of, of kind of growth, economic growth or whatever, or there's some abundance – sort of drives the market in a direction where it's like, okay, things are starting to inflate and we're going to increase property prices. So typically you have a lot of builder activity uh, in that background. Then as interest rates go up, that actually causes, because you know that, that causes uh, developer finance to kind of go into a situation where they can't sustain it. And you typically see when interest rates go up, a lot of builders and a lot of developers go bust. Subsequently, the capability to build properties in the market goes down and then uh, the economy starts to taper, not because just of the developers, but because interest rates have gone up, they taper the growth of the economy to such a degree that they then need to go and then reduce interest rates again, which is typically what happens. Then as the interest rates come down and the economic prosperity starts to thrive again, people, there are not enough, the the builders haven't been able to keep up with the supply of properties and therefore you have a a surge of demand into a market where there hasn't been any supply building up because of specifically the builder side. So it actually points to the idea that interest rates go up, builders and developers go broke, interest rates go down, not enough houses, property boom. That is actually a pretty consistent cycle that's happened in a lot of countries. Like that's not to that's happened in the US, that's happened in China, that's happened in parts of Europe, that's happened in Australia. Very interesting when you think about that. And what do you think about that first? Well, well, I think you're right. And, and this is why I'm so perplexed by economists who seem to think that high and rising interest rates means property prices fall and low interest rate means property prices rise. They haven't studied history in Australia. That's not been the case. We've had our biggest booms when interest rates have been high and rising, like the late 80s like the early part of this century um, when interest rates were much higher than now and now they were rising and property prices kept kept going up. You know, the reason why we have rising interest rates is because we've got a, a booming economy and inflation rise and they're trying to dampen things down. When we're in those circumstances, people are more likely to be out there investing. So that's what we saw in the 1980s when interest rates just kept going up and up and up and the boom just raged on. Um, and we've seen it this year. Um, after 12 interest rate rises, we're seeing prices rising in this country. Um, and so I think your theory that you've just articulated is, is very valid. Um, and, and I would sort of extend it a bit further. It's just that we're, we're, we're most likely to have a, um, people out there buying in times of high and rising interest rates for the reasons why we have rising interest rates, is to try and dampen down a, a booming economy or rising inflation. Um, so, yeah, none of that's surprising, but the economists, I don't understand why they, they don't have their heads around that. It's pretty basic stuff, really. Yeah, it's, fa- it's fascinating stuff. So, here's a couple of observations from myself on why, you know, what I kind of see happening in the market over the next little period of time. And, and I want to, I'm, I'm trying to shout this from the rooftops because, you know, back in, back in 2020, uh, you and I and, you know, a couple of other people were sort of saying, hey, <laughs> This is the time to buy. This is going to be really good. And people thought it wasn't going to be good. And then, you know, and then in 2022, when people like, oh, property market's crashing, we're like, no, it's not. And, you know, the people who participated uh, managed to make a lot of lot of benefit. And so I'd really hate people to miss out on what I think is going to be a very significant transformational opportunity. As we already discussed, immigration through the roof. The tons of immigration coming in, which again, I think is a great thing. I think it's great for the economy. I think it's great for skills diversity. I think it's great for our position in the world. I think it's great for our culture to have uh, a high level of immigration. I think that's really good. Buildings, uh, building rates and building approval rates, very, very low. Even if the approval rates have ticked up a little bit, which I think they have recently, there's less builders. <laughs> so so getting the approval is one thing, building the property is another, uh, building the house is another, another thing. So not enough properties getting built. What happens or what I, what I typically see actually influences the market more than anything else is well, it's two key things. Number one is access to credit. It's not interest rates, it's access to credit. And then number two is consumer sentiment. 
And what we saw in 2020 was a, a, a lack of consumer sentiment. And then also as people start to get fear uh, in 2021, in certain markets, you see a lack of consumer sentiment. And that kind of points to, broadly speaking, some areas being more affected than others. But as we start to see, and what I've personally seen in our business is lots of um, ready and willing property investors who haven't been able, and the reason they haven't been able is because they haven't been able to get the access to credit because interest rates have risen to a point where even though they've got good incomes and all of that kind of stuff, they're unable to service because the serviceability rates have gone up and all of that kind of stuff. And so they might have the cash supply, they might have the savings ready to go, they might have good incomes, but because of the interest rate um, variance or they're unable to get the access to credit. Now, what I think is a reasonable assessment of the current set of circumstances is that interest rates are going to come down in the next near future. So once you start to see interest rates coming down, consumer sentiment is already improving, by the way, because people have normalized to these changes of living conditions and all of that kind of stuff. It's generally speaking improving. Uh, even though this time, even though the inflation's starting to come off, you know, people are starting to feel better. So once you start to improve the access to credit side of thing, what is that going to do? You've got millions of people who want to enter the property market who are ready and willing. And the second that they are able, i.e. access to credit, they are going to be charging into the market into a market that is already flooded with additional people from immigration and a lack of properties from a lack of building. I can't see a scenario where that doesn't translate to tremendous amounts of price growth in a very large number of areas. What do you think about that? I really can't disagree with any of that. And, you know, my thought process is very similar. Um, Yes, I think, as I mentioned in some of my comments earlier, I think People have normalized to the new situation. They've got used to the scenario um, and they have adapted. I think also we're, we're seeing the lenders adapting. They have to adapt as well um, to maintain their living lending level. So maybe compromise a little bit on some of their criteria. Um, interest rates, yes, I think will come down. Um, they're certainly not going to go any higher, I don't believe. Um, there's the other. The other factor in the market that we haven't touched on, um, but is supported by the research, and that is that there's a very high proportion of buyers out there who are cash buyers. Um, like in some parts of Australia, like 30% of buyers, you know, they don't need a loan, so they're totally unaffected by um, the level of interest rates. They just um, like downsizes, for example, that they've sold a prop- property that they've owned in the family for 30 years and they had no mortgage, and so they can pay cash for a, a smaller property that suits their needs better. And so th- there's a lot of that in the market. So all of those things combined with we're not building enough, we can't build more than we are because of everything that's happening in the building industry and uh, migrant intake is rising. Um, all of these things uh, point to upward pressure on prices. We've seen very moderate growth um, up to this point this year, but I think that's going to accelerate. And we actually say that in the new edition of the Price Predict Index, which we've just published, based on that our analysis of uh, sales activity, which has resurged in most parts of the country. And our number one conclusion is this means you're going to see high levels of price growth in the next 12 months, at least. And do you think that's going to be broad acre, or do you think that's going to be highly localised into some specific areas? Do you see that there might be a transition from sort of regional, which has been the dominant force over the last you know, a period of time to capital cities. Do you look because back in twenty twenty one, you know, it was a it was a unusually high percentage of locations all grew to the degree that you could kind of buy anywhere and it'd go up. But then of course some of those areas went down again because they went back by solid fundamentals. But do you do you kind of see from what you can see in the data that you look at, do you do you see that it's going to be a sort of you know, across the country, most places are going to go up, or do you think it's going to be highly localized based on specific local market conditions? And also, do you think it's going to be more regional, more capital, or just spread between the two? Well, I think, I think it's going to be fairly general, but as is always the case, some some areas are going to do better than others because of their local uh, economic circumstances, and that's always the case. Um, there are a couple of exceptions that, that are joining this resurgent trend I'm talking about. Canberra is one of them. It just seems to be stuck in neutral and also Darwin. But most other places are um, are seeing this uplift in, in activity. So I do expect that you know price growth is going to be quite widespread. But as is always the case, some places are going to do better than others because they have stronger local economies or they've got a bigger infrastructure spend happening, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, one of the things that we do see very strongly coming through that we haven't touched on today, and that is I think we're, we are seeing more and more demand for people opting for apartments. I think that paradigm is changing. Um, right now, we would say that um, the, well, in terms of the price prediction index, our, our national growth star is actually the city of Sydney. That's the, the Sydney uh, city council area, the inner city suburbs of Sydney, where they're just pretty much every suburb, you know, Darlinghurst and um, Potts Point, um, Pomont, huge uplift and activity. And these are markets that are dominated by apartments. Um, people are seeking that greater level of affordability. It's not just the inner city areas. We're seeing it in areas like Parramatta. Um, we're seeing it in some of the regional markets like Sunshine Coast and the Gold Coast and others. Uh, but definitely people are making the choice of apartments for two reasons. One is lifestyle, low-maintenance lifestyle, and the other one is affordability. Um, like the inner west of Sydney, um, you might pay $2 million for the typical house, but you can buy apartments, you know, 700000 And um, I think that's a significant uh, trend in the market that's going to um, change one of those dominant paradigms of real estate that houses on land show better growth than apartments. I think that that is changing to a certain degree. Yeah, I think it's. I think I hundred percent agree with you, and I think that that uh, points to probably a, a kind of like a sort of a two speed market in many ways, which is which has existed between houses and um, and apartments for for a long period of time. But if you kind of you, you know more and more, I start to see the Australian market represent something that looks like the Singapore housing market or the Hong Kong housing market, which is just that there's a tremendously constrained supply and there's tremendously high demand, and therefore prices just continue to go up and up. And one of the only solves for that is uh, increasing density, because unless you want to just continue to eat up, use up all the arable land for more houses, which would be a stupid decision, we would then need to think about how do we create more density, which kind of points to apartments. And then to your point, from an affordability perspective, which underpins the vast majority of the purchase, purchasing decisions for the vast majority of Australians, it's what's the best property that I can afford that meets my lifestyle desires. It's not just what's my dream home, because I'm not better afford it. And if you've got houses that are $2 million plus, You've got apartments that are $750,000 and they can get their lifestyle desires met from those kind of apartment scenarios, then that does point to an area where there could be some pent-up demand starting to build. We're starting to see that too, to be frank. you know, We're starting to really assess, well, what does that mean? How do we start thinking about integrating that into our strategic approach? You know, How do we you know, manage risk in that? And is it, a, is it a kind of a long-term sustainable trend or is it a blip? You know, Because this could just be like a, a momentary, you know, bump in prices, but then it could flatline as well because obviously the risk is, of course, oversupply and you've got to consider that in those areas as well. Yeah, yeah, um, that's true. You've always got to be mindful of that with uh, apartment markets and I always um, I speak to people about if you're wanting to invest in apartments, look for points of difference. Look look for maybe boutique-type apartments rather than, you know, 35-storey high-rise where there's 300 apartments and they're all the same um, from a capital growth perspective. One of the other factors I think that's um, likely to uh, lead to an increase in demand for apartments is that, again, the migrant factor. You know, people are migrating to Australian large numbers, but they're coming from places where, you know, living in those kinds of dwellings is the norm. Um, You know, people coming from Asia, for example, or or the Middle East, um, you know, a suburban house on a, you know, on a quarter acre block is, is not what they're accustomed to. Many of the people are coming in from other cultures, and um, so again, apartments is is pretty normal, and just another reason why I believe that 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 particular section of the market is going to um, be a better performer as we go forward. Yeah, hundred percent. It's really interesting, actually, just on that point, just to kind of segue slightly. I was recently in um, uh, Kuala Lumpur, KL, and uh, it's a, the housing market there is really interesting because there are so many uh, properties. Um, there are so many properties uh, that are available, but they've all these big high-rise buildings, so they've got this massive oversupply. So you can get a really nice place to live, like a really nice place to live, beautiful, great views, amazing facilities, typically an apartment, and you're going to pay next to nothing for it. you know. And so the problem with that, though, is they've got so much oversupply that there's, I mean, I wouldn't be investing there, put it that way, because I don't even know if and when you would see any growth. You're sort of talking like, I think, $1,000 a square metre, um, for for properties in um, in KL, mostly for apartments, whereas in Sydney you're sort of looking at two and a half thousand dollars a square meter, right? And so, yeah, you're right where um, you know you can start to kind of see how the affordability can kind of play out. And with migrants coming in from overseas, they don't necessarily that that big Australian dream, landed properties, and all that kind of stuff. Me, 
maybe it's not necessary for the lifestyle. So it does point to a potentially changing market, which is interesting too. Awesome. Okay, Terry. All right. I think we've nailed this. I, th- I think we've just about talked it out, really. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's been a pretty good overview of, of where property markets are at and where they're heading. Um, we tend to agree on pretty much everything, but I think it's, you know, it's based on um, – I know your organisation does a lot of research and so does mine, um, and so, you know, we're, we're not just um, venting our spleen or – Plucking thought thought bubbles out of the ether. We're actually basing it on 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 hard cold research, and that's where we see things heading at the moment. It's it's quite positive for property markets, um, and I just um, urge people to tune out all that white noise in the media in the background, and um, you know just just get on with it. But um, you know, be willing to invest in advice and information as well as in real estate, because a lot of people you know skimp. They think they can penny pinch their way to success in property investment. It doesn't work like that. You've got to build your team before you build your portfolio, and that means investing in good advice and good information. You're more likely to be successful um, as false economy to try and do it any other way. 100% agree with you. And most people think that all you need to do is buy houses, but there's a reason that 90% of people don't get past the second property is because they buy a house. Like far beyond just buying a house. You need to have a strategic approach to buy the right property in the right place at the right time, and that's the only thing you, you can only do that if you've got the right people around you. So. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, less than one percent actually build a portfolio. Um, you've just alluded to that, and, and and our ambition with our business is try and help people to become part of the one percent. Yeah, because you know, same. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Right. With you. I agree with you, Terry. Awesome. Love catching up. Good to see you again. Let's do it again soon. Okay. Yeah. We're never short of things to talk about. Um, we haven't even talked about, um, well, next Next topic. That'll be for the next episode, Terry. Keep it. Save it. Save it. Save it. I'll see you soon. Okay. Right. Thanks, Stuart. See you.